series that has been brewing in my heart because I truly believe we're in, in times that sometimes living out your faith is a little bit difficult. Standing for what you believe has become a little bit difficult. I've entitled this series of message called The Daniel Dilemma. The Daniel Dilemma. The question I have for all of us this morning is, how do we stand firm while we're living in a very compromising culture? How do we stand firm for what we believe in, in a culture that's full of compromise? How do we stand firm on harder questions of Scripture, yet still love people? Now, I don't know if you've ever been confronted with this, but I believe that as a church, we're confronted with this all the time, but even more so when we're living in a what I would call an age where God is irrelevant, has become irrelevant to our society, our mainstream society. They don't want us to talk about God. They, they want your faith to remain personal, internalized, something that you practice on a Sunday and you don't tell anybody about what you do. The dilemma that we're in is this, is how can we charge with hard-hitting truths? In other words, stand for a truth that uh, we believe, stand against what everyone else believes, but still make people feel loved. It's a challenge, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but uh, you confront that all the time. You, you, sometimes our children do things that we as parents aren't happy with. And we can either roll over and say, whatever you want to do, young man, young woman, you do it. And we don't stand for anything. Or we, we sometimes we come from the other position where we're tough, we're disciplinarians, and we struggle to love them, show love at the same time. Can we stand firm with hard-hitting truths and make people feel loved? Can we become so grace-filled that we take a liberal rather than a literal interpretation of Scripture? And that's what a lot of Christians are doing today. They open the Scripture and they read stuff they shall not, and they come up with, uh, they, they find a, a more of a, uh, uh, a liberal interpretation. Well, God probably didn't really mean that. Rather than taking a literal interpretation. Did God really mean thou shalt not murder? Did God really mean thou shalt not commit adultery? Maybe he wasn't really saying that. So to sort of to appease between the culture that we live in and biblical truth, they take a, a position that says, well, maybe God didn't really mean that because times have changed. Sometimes we could completely ignore the harder issues completely. We say it's just too difficult to talk about this whole gender reassignment, this whole gender dysphoria, uh, same-sex marriage. It's, it's probably better we just don't talk about that. It's probably better that we don't talk about things called adultery. It's best not to talk about it because people will work it out themselves. And so sometimes it, it just seems easier not to talk about it. Now, I've even heard church leaders that on some of these critical issues don't have a voice. They say, well, just read the Bible, find out for yourself. Many times when we deal with truth from Scripture, we can be correct but not helpful. I'll say that again. 
Many times when we deal with biblical scripture, we can be absolutely correct, but not helpful. Has anybody been in such a predicament? Well, God doesn't, doesn't uh, approve of what you're doing. And it comes across harsh and cutting them down and heaping guilt all over their life. Often we mean well, but we don't love well. I believe we're all well-meaning Christians here, amen? We mean well. Many times we've got the right intentions. We, we, we want to help people, but we come across as very critical, judgmental. Don't judge me. So we, we've got the right thing in our heart, but just as we demonstrate it, people aren't feeling love. And we find ourselves in a cultural storm and there is a, a tempest of contrasting societal norms that are raging against the church. That's the climate in which we live in. In some of our coming up elections, uh, the federal elections, you've got some of these uh, uh, sitting ministers and sitting representatives of parliament that they're standing for the very conservative ideals. You say they, on the scale of liberalism and conservatism, they're conservative uh, politicians. And, and what's happening is that there's raising up these candidates that are very leftist or very uh, liberal. And they say, these people, these conservatives, are actually destroying our country. If you were to ask me which side of politics do we sit on, well, I'll say, well, we, we've got a conservative outlook. Any conservatives in this place? Three people. Some of you young people are like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. Well, we can, we can use the term as old-fashioned ideas. And young people never want to be involved with anything that's old-fashioned. I was thinking about this the other day, and I realized that I'm, I'm being older a lot longer than I was young. That's going to happen to all of you. All the under-20s, you think like, I'm going to be young forever. Guess what? You older a lot longer than you are young. You're going to get to like old-fashioned ideas the older you get. And so you've got this, this contrasting wind of doctrine that's coming against the church. It's coming against Christians. Coming against Christianity, coming against faith as we know it. And standing in the face of all that, we as Christians need to remain balanced. How do you remain balanced in a, in a society where you know what you stand for, everybody probably in that room thinks completely different. And you know, I, I, never, I never feel that as a church we should have a little holy huddle. You know, we just come together in closed doors. We, we don't go out in the community because we're just protecting and we, we, we're just preserving, <laughs> preserving what we got. We don't want to lose what we got. No, I, I believe that even in such a climate, because it's not just a climate for today, but it's always been, there's always been these sorts of climates that says, hey, the church is not just about staying within its four walls, but it's getting out there. See, we need to uphold the standards of God's word as well as show loving acceptance and life-changing grace. So if we could do it, that's what we need to do. If we stand for God's standards, the word of God is truth. That's what we stand on. It's not old-fashioned. It's always in fashion. It's called eternal truth of God. We stand for that. But we also stand 
for a, a reaching out and loving people, amen, showing grace to people. But often standing firm in loving well paralyzes us, where we don't know what to say, what to do, or how to act. We have it inside of, you know, I, I don't want to compromise in what I believe, but I also want to reach out to people. And sometimes because we don't know what we do, uh, what to do, we don't do anything. We keep our mouths shut and we keep away from people just in case what they've got may just fall and rub on us. We want to love people. We want to serve others in need. We want to share the good news, but we don't want to embrace immorality. Immorality. Pastor, that's very, that's a very heavy word. We want to stand for the truth of God. We want to love people. We don't want to embrace immorality. We want to embrace people, but not immorality. How do we do that? I don't hear too many pastors speaking on this topic. I don't hear too many sermons preached on how do we balance the two, where we stand for truth, but show God's love. We don't want to alienate people who need God just as much as we don't want to compromise our convictions and biblical beliefs. How do we do it? Well, I truly believe we need to find a balance between love and truth. And I, I'm going to read to you because we just, we came out of a 21-day fast that was taken out of the life of Daniel. So I'm going to talk again about the life of Daniel this morning. That's why it's called the Daniel Dilemma. Because we're not the only ones who found themselves or find ourselves in a time of compromise that's all around us. How do we remain true to who we are in God and show influence to our community? Daniel found himself in very similar position as we find ourselves in today. He was exiled into a foreign and ungodly land of Babylon. We go, well, this is, is this actually a place? Yes, it is. It's modern-day Iraq. Found himself in Babylon, which is about 100 kilometers south of Baghdad. You're wondering, what does Babylon mean? Babylon means confusion. Daniel was brought to a place that was called Babylon that says, that interpreted means confusion. I don't know. I, I watch the television shows, I, you know, whether it's the news or some project. Or one of those other shows, I go, the world is in a state of confusion. And that's where Daniel found himself. I'm going to read to you the whole chapter one of the book of Daniel. Is that okay? You can follow. I think we may have it on the screen. Adele, we got it on the screen? Yeah, coming up. New Living Translation. Daniel chapter one in the New Living Translation. During the third year of King Joachim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory of, over King Joachim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. The king ordered Aspenax, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who'd been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, 
and good-looking young men like Pastor Mungo. Make sure that they're well-versed in every branch of learning, gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in your language, train these young men in language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. And at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who'd been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. God gave these four men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to the king. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter regarding wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the other magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Quite an interesting story. I, I thought that we've just done 21 days of fast. Maybe we should go on a 10-day fast. Everyone's looking at me going like, are you kidding me? I'm barely recovering. No, I'm not going to proclaim a 10-day fast. But it's an interesting story because here's Daniel taken from the land of Judah, taken into exile into Babylon. And obviously there was something special about this young man, these other men. There was something special that they said, hey, these are the type of men the king said, these are the type of men that I want to be in my house, serving me and serving the program that I have for this nation. 
we can honestly say that our society is in a state of confusion. I think that we, in a sense, we are living in a modern day Babylon. There's confusion all around us. And as you notice the indoctrination, they were to be set apart for three years of training. And one of the things that they had to do was they had to learn a new language. They had to learn a new culture. They had to eat some new foods. And on top of that, they had to have their names changed. Friends, I want you to understand, culture has an agenda. This modern day culture has an agenda. And can I propose the agenda of this modern day culture is to do away with God, to do away with the Word of God, to do away with faith, to do away with lasting truth, to do away with absolutes. In other words, this is absolutely right or absolutely wrong. There's no longer absolutes. That's the agenda of our culture. See, culture has an agenda. It helps, it's trying to make people conform. You conform, good. If you don't conform, you're seen as an outlaw. And they promote certain things. And so there's this agenda of this culture in which we live in is to do away with anything that was of the past. We're, we're trying to rewrite history. We're trying to do away with what the influence of Christianity on the Western world. We're trying to do away with the uh, influence of Christianity in Europe, in England, in America, in Australia. We, we no longer want to acknowledge the part that the Word of God has had in our culture and also in our governmental systems. That's the agenda. And the same sort of agenda was there for Daniel. One of the most interesting things that they did for these Jews in exile was giving them a new name. See, with a new name, you get a new identity. I wanted to get a new identity at school. I think I've told you this story. But maybe some of you haven't heard. I think I still have the Dolomite kids at school. You you bring your dollar and you you put it in a savings account. Do do they still have it? Well, when I was in primary school, it was bank, uh, Savings Bank of South Australia back then. Came into our school and obviously they had some sort of agreement, and they said, if you want to save some money, we're going to give you a little money box, but you have to fill out this form. And I, I said, I, I want a money box, so I fill out the form, and on the form it had name, first name, second name, surname, address. Now, I, I was a bit cheated off because my sister has got a middle name, her name is Maria Grazia. I don't have a middle name. My name's Marantino. So I thought I'd invent one. I thought if I invent a, a, a name, a, a name that I really want, because I didn't really like Maria, I thought, right, I'll, I'll, I'll give myself a middle name. My parents couldn't fill out forms because they couldn't write or read English, so I had to fill out all the, all the forms. So no big deal. I'll just get mum and dad to sign at the bottom. They had no idea what they were signing to. But So... I'm thinking like, what middle name can I give myself? And I thought of all the names under the sun. I thought, Dad works with a guy, he's, he's Greek, his name is Jim. 
so I gave myself the middle name Jim. Mario, Jim, Penguin. And, and I want you to know that I had that, that, that account until I was about 21. When they finally said, you got, you got 10 bucks here, you want to come and draw the money out. So I go to the bank and I bring my license and it's got Mario Penguin on there. I go, are you the same guy? See, somehow I thought that by giving myself a middle name was going to change my identity. Felt better about myself, and now I have a middle name. I never shared it with my parents. They don't know to, a, to this day that I gave myself a middle name called Jim, and I thought somehow I was going to feel better. There's something about names, though. I mean, do I look like a Jim? Come on. Do I look like a Mario? I was afraid you were going to say yeah. Bless my granddad. They gave him a name. They gave him a new name. Does anybody know what Daniel means? Daniel means God is my judge. Wait a minute. God is my judge. Now, now listen to the name they gave Daniel. Belteshazzar, which means lady protect the king bit weird so they gave him a female name talk about gender crisis gender confusion is that the Babylon in which we live in today Hananiah Yahweh has been gracious to Shadrach it says I'm fearful of God from Yahweh has been gracious to a point of like, he's been gracious to me To I need to fear God. Isn't that the society in which we live in today? Why would you want to worship a God that dictates how to live your life? You need to be afraid of God because he's always been a God that selected some, a few and got rid of others. You need to be fearful of God. Mishael means that. Who can compare to my God? No one. His name was changed to Mishael. I'm despised, content, contemptible, and humiliated. From a focus on God, that how big is our God, to a focus on, look at me, and I'm nothing. From confidence to cowardice. Azaria, which means Yahweh has helped me, was changed his name to Abednego, servant of Nebo. From son of God to a slave of man. There's something about the identity that we give ourselves. I want you to understand this morning. I don't want, to look, I don't want you to consider the identity you've given yourself but look at the identity that God has for you because God has the right label over your life. The world will want us to think that we are nothing. The world would want us to think that we're just Christians and we're old fuddy-duddies and have no clue. But God has put a label over our life. The devil would want us 
to change the identity that we have over ourselves that God has given us. He tries to put his label on us. Good for nothing. Never amount to anything. Where's your God? Does he answer your prayers? Even in exile in a strange land, we need to know who we are or we will fall for every wind of reasoning that will blow us away. I believe that right now in our culture, it's not a time to step back or retreat, but to step forward and step up because God has called us. Amen. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. God is for you. Amen. The world may be against you. It doesn't matter what number there is that's against us, as long as we know that God is for us. God's for you. So they tried to change their their names. They tried to give them a new culture. They gave them food to eat. Why? Because they're saying, we want you. We, we like who you are. We like the what we see in you. But you need to become like us. Isn't that the culture in which we live in? Our Christians are generally good people. But we want them to become more and more like us. And Daniel, in the midst of all of this, he's in a dilemma. What do we do? He basically balanced truth and love, truth and integrity. He balanced them. He had deep convictions. And this is what he said. He said, oh, sorry. I know you've got good intentions for us, but we can't eat this food. Well, if you don't eat this food, the king's going to take my head off. Okay, let's do a test. Let's, let's do a test for the next 10 days. If we eat the food that we want in 10 days' time, you assess and see. And I go, he's actually helping them to see that they had convictions and they were willing to work with them. Culture will ask you to compromise your standards. When culture shifts, we need to reaffirm our convictions. So here's Daniel. He's in a, in a, in a completely new culture that's trying to shape them, three years of shaping them to become just like everyone else. That's when they had to stand up and say, no, this is what we believe in and this is what we stand for. Our faith and our resolve will be tested. Culture is always creating a confrontation that will test our faith, test what we stand for. And when culture shifts, we need to respond in the right way. We can do three different things. We could be right and dogmatic, which is not helpful. Don't you know what the Bible says? If you continue to do that, you're going to hell. It's right and dogmatic. Is any of that wrong? None of that's wrong except the way that we've done it. It's not helpful. Or we can open the gate and let everything through in the name of love. It's okay. Have you heard this? God loves everybody. Is that true? Does God love everything we do? See the difference? Does God love what love all of us? Does he love some of the things that we do? So we say, God loves everybody. Sometimes we believe that we love people more than God loves them. 
God loves everyone equally. Any messed up people in this place? Does God love you? Any messed up people in the world? Does God love them? He loves us equally. So one, we can be very dogmatic. If you continue to do that, you're going to hell. Truth, but not helpful. Or second, thing we can do is say, oh, it's okay. God accepts everybody as we are. That's true too. Just come in as you are. It's okay. The third one, I believe there needs to be a balance of the two. Where we speak the truth, make the door open, we show mercy and we show grace, but we demonstrate that God is not just a God of love, but also a God of truth. Daniel demonstrated the balance between truth and love. He was firm in faith, but he was able to influence a whole generation. And that second part of chapter 1, what did I say? That the king saw them as they were 10 times more smarter and wiser than everybody else. What's that? What's that? What did they have? They had influence. All of a sudden, the king wants to hear what they had to say on matters of governance. Jesus demonstrated truth and love. In John chapter 1, verse 14, in the New King James Version, says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, here it is, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. See, Jesus was able to demonstrate grace and truth. Truth is God's standards. What God said. God's word is truth. And we must be a contemporary church, yes. When I use that word contemporary, how many people are happy we don't sing from a hymnal anymore? Actually, I didn't mind hymnals because if, 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 if you said hymn number one, I'll know exactly which hymn it is. We want to be, con- I'm glad we're a contemporary church because the church I went to, we had piano accordions on the front row, about six of them, and a violin in the corner, and a guy used to play trumpet a little bit out of tune. So I, I, I thank God, I know there's some people don't like the drums, but drums are a great thing. How many people love drums in the church? Uh, you know who used to be the song leader? The pastor used to be the song leader. There were no singers up here. So if the pastor stayed, uh, started the song out of tune, guess what? The whole congregation sang out of tune. And the musicians are there trying to reconcile the key that they're playing and the key that they're singing. And it was a big mess. Thank God we're a contemporary church. I thank God that we've got some media in our church. I, I thank God that um, we sort of sit together. Amen. The church I went to is the men sat on one side and the women sat on the other. I thank God that we're a contemporary church because the church I went to when I grew up was uh, the women had headscarves on. We want to be contemporary, but when it comes to truth, we want to be old-fashioned. Why? Because the Word of God never changes. If it's truth, It's truth not only 
for 30 years ago or 200 years ago, it'd still be truth for the next 200 years or 1,000 years should Jesus tarry. It's still truth. Truth is God's standard. God's word is truth. We must be contemporary, but remain old-fashioned. New methods are great, but they need to be founded in eternal truth. See, my friends, I want you to understand this morning that without truth, we remain corrupt. Without grace, we are condemned. Without truth, we become worldly. You go, what's worldly? The stuff that the world accepts as normal, but the Word of God says it's not right. The world gets on us, in us. That's why we need truth. You look at a bunch of truth every single morning that you get up. You look in the mirror, and the mirror doesn't lie to you. Your hair's out of place, and you've got something hanging from your nose. No, you're, you're not saying the right thing. No, I don't believe you. I'll go to another mirror. You get to the other mirror, and guess what? You've still got that thing hanging on your nose. That mirror is reflecting the truth. The mirror for us is the Word of God, no matter what the rest of the world says. It's truth. Without grace, we become judgmental. Truth without grace is mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. See, you need both truth and grace. Truth and grace is a medicine for our soul. It's truth and grace is what we need. See, you need to understand, grace brings us close to God. But it's truth that sets us free. In John chapter 8, verse 32, in the King James Version, it says, You shall know the truth, and it's the truth that makes you free. That's how Daniel dealt with truth and grace. But there's someone else that's dealt with truth and grace. In John chapter 8, verse 1 to 11, there's a story about a woman caught in adultery. How many know the story? Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was taken again. He was taken back at the temple. He was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her and threw her in front of the crowd. There's nothing gracious about that act. Could have been a setup. Could have been. Did they know that this woman was having extramarital affairs, sleeping around, committing adultery? Obviously, they must have known. They said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to catch this woman in the act. And as 
they catch her, and I'm just wondering what happened to the man that she was sleeping with. Why just her and not man? Well, that was irrelevant to them because they wanted to make, they wanted to bring Jesus down. That's what they're trying to do at the expense of this woman. And so it was all about trying to get to trick Jesus. So they throw her in front of Jesus, in front of a big crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? What do you say, Jesus? They're trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer. Just the way that Jesus deals with stuff is just unbelievable. You think, why would, why would he be writing in the dust with his finger? And they're getting annoyed. We, we need to have an answer. This is like, there was no way of Jesus being able to get out of this situation. Because they knew if he let her go, he was breaking the law of Moses. If he accused her, they were going to kill this woman. They're going to stone her. How many of you are happy that you don't live in biblical times? They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he began to write again in the dust. I've, I've preached on this before and I said, I don't know, some scholars tend to think he was writing the Ten Commandments. I heard another version this week. Actually, like this one too. He's probably writing. Remember, it's the men, the Pharisees, Sadducees that brought this woman before Jesus, or the religious leaders, all these men. How about this? Maybe he's writing the names of every woman that they had slept with. Could be. He's writing Sally. There's a girl. Ooh, Sally. I see one guy rip off because he knows who Sally was. And he's writing another name and Erica. And who's it? Jesus, nuts. Who's Erica? The guy who'd slept with Erica takes off. And he's writing. He's writing, and, and it's quite interesting because I've never seen this before. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning from the oldest. I fall in this category here. The oldest because we've got more stuff we've done wrong that God has forgiven us. From 
from the oldest to the youngest, they, one by one, they all take off. They all leave. Until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with a woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Everything up to this moment is all about the grace of God. Every single part of how Jesus responded and how he acted. It's all about the grace of God. But now he's just going to balance it with his truth. And what's the truth? Say, okay, be gone. He didn't say be gone. Say, all right, just carry on as you were. No. He didn't say carry on as you were. What did he say? He said, go and sin no more. See the balance there between grace and truth? Did he accept what the woman was doing? Did he accept the woman? Did he balance grace and truth? It's grace and truth. Grace says, I don't condemn you, but truth says, go and sin no more. I, I, I would like... I would like to have a follow-up, an update. I would like to know the, what the update was, but it's not in the Bible. There's no update. What did she do when she left there? I don't know. I have no idea whether she went back into an old world, our old life, sleeping around again. I don't know. Or I don't know if her life was turned around completely and she remained faithful to her spouse or whatever. She remained pure. I have no idea. But Jesus... Balance grace and truth. See, it was God's grace that drew her in. But it was God's truth that was setting her free. Go and sin 